Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is, can we just talk about... Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for another Can We Just Talk About? Nicole Davis, how are you? Arr! Been fighting with iTunes. It's a pain in the butt. I need to find an alternative. Y- yes, yes. Um, yes, if only there was an entire industry that had arisen out of the demise of iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Shut up. I don't know. <laughs> I own an actual... Look, I own an actual iPod right here which is what i listen to my music on oh she's holding one up right now wow ipod classic you could get some good money for that i on bought eBay. it for good money on no, ebay those are, <laughs> yeah, those are worth their weight in gold yeah i mean this is the i know quite literally and they are weighty this is a 160 gig version so yes well nicole uh the world of streaming Hi, does sorry. weigh you but i i do think there is something <laughs> wonderful for owning your own music uh david luzader how are you the world is changed brett <laughs> i feel it in the water i wish oh. i had i wish i had kate blanchett's voice the world is changed i feel it in the water i feel it in the earth I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Yeah, I think you should just do the entire episode as Kate Blanchett. Uh, Man, uh, so weird to be talking about this movie and her in particular when we're about to get in literally two weeks an entire series about her character. Uh, We'll talk about that. I'm excited about that. But before we get into it, I do want to announce next week's movie so folks can follow along. They can watch along. Next week is Future Classics. It is my pick. It is my opportunity to pick a film that's come out in the last 10 years that I am deeming in some capacity to be a classic that will uh, you know, go down in the echelons of film in a special and unique way. And my film just became available to rent like two weeks ago. So I think it's the, the most recent movie we've ever done on this show. We are going to watch a film called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, wow. All right. We're getting it out of the way already. Wow. Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> so we're, we're checking that out next week. The first A24 movie to make $100 million I saw the other day. So I'm glad they're finally making money on their movies. But very excited to talk about that. You can stream it. And I it's actually, interestingly enough, like on Peacock as a a streamable thing with some sort of agreement with them. So there's a couple ways to get it, but check that out for next week. If you'd like to follow along. However, this week we are going back to 2001 to Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, a great deal about a ring, a dark Lord and something about the end of the world. One does not simply walk in the Mordor. You have my bow and my ax and my t-shirt gun, yada, yada. Uh, These are all the things that Nicole summed up into the description of this movie because we've all seen it right like this is like the reason i added this to can we just talk about well stepping back for a moment 
the reason that this is the only category we can talk about it on is because it's too old to be a future classic. <laughs> Everyone has seen it, so we can't do a new to two. It's not an international film. It's never going to be a you did this to us because it's good. So <laughs> there just wasn't a lot of opportunity to talk about this, which is why I really wanted to bring it in. Can we just talk about? I mean, technically, technically it was made in... In New Zealand by a New Zealand director and written by New Zealanders. <laughs> that is the kind of um, logic that I typically roll with. And Tolkien was British, yeah. so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, right off the bat, I'm not going to do the whole, have you seen Fellowship of the Ring? Because, like, we've all seen this movie numerous times. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, just to get it right out of the way, the reason I, I picked this and the reason I put it into our, in contention for Can We Just Talk About is because I've seen Lord of the Rings many, many, many times, and I've read the books many times, and uh, recently went back and did a watch-through of all of them, you know, including The Hobbits, with the extended cuts, everything. And I was struck most recently in the last year by just how good this film is, and how I think it might actually be the best film of the three. And what's surprising to me in that is that I never thought that before because I was so captured by the grandeur of The Two Towers and Return of the King, as I think many people are. These are movies that are explosive and huge, and they end with these giant castle sieges that are completely unforgettable, whether it's Helm's Deep in The Two Towers or Minas Tirith in Return of the King. And this movie doesn't have that. It has moments of grandeur. There is the Balrog, and there is... You know, the Urukai, which are horrifying, but they just fight a bunch of guys in the woods. Like hmm. it's it's not to the degree of what Helm's Deep becomes in the second movie and then Ministerith following it. So that's that's why I wanted to bring it to the panel, because I wanted to do a little bit of readjustment after having seen this movie so many times, just to appreciate what the fellowship was and how it laid the groundwork for one of the most pivotal trilogies in film and how it has some of the trilogy's best scenes and best writing. And I don't think it's quite appreciated the way it should be in that regard. So that's why I'm bringing fellowship of the ring to the table, just so everyone has context as to why I picked it. Okay. So let's (laughs) dive in. Well, first of all, has everyone seen the extended cut or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, gosh, uh, I mean, of course, like I, I saw this movie in theaters. I've watched it several times, got the extended cut, watched that several times. And then five, no, three, four years ago, I went, it was on Tolkien day. Alamo <laughs> draft house did nice. a full, like all three movies, all extended edition playthrough. And so I sat in a theater for 12 and a half hours Good Lord, man. Uh, With breaks in between, like during the credits and like, you know, a little (laughs) bit in between. But like I watched all three of them in one day in one. And Alamo. Oh, it's great because they have like bottomless popcorn. (laughs) So if you bought popcorn Uh during Fellowship of the Ring, during the Return of the King, you could still be like, yeah, fill this sucker up. Just keep going. (laughs) Unsolicited ad for Alamo Drafthouse and how great of a movie experience it is. Every episode. Every episode. Man, that I would love and hate to do that. That sounds <laughs> that sounds like quite the experience. It's nice to do once in a while. I've done several <laughs> my fiance calls them butt numathons movie yeah, marathons. That sounds about that, right. 
our local Brattle Theater had for fundraisers several years. And so you get six movies over 12 hours, and then you come back the next day and you do it again uh, on a weekend. <laughs> and you get some good ones and you get some bad ones, but I will always be thankful to them for showing me for the final midnight movie one night, uh, uh, Miami Connection on the big screen. Uh, oh, we got to get Miami Connection on here. <laughs> Which nice. is a perfect one to have at the we end. We got to get Miami Connection on here so bad. <laughs> of the marathon when you're yeah. real punchy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but in any case, yeah, I mean, it's good to do once in a while. Because, I mean, who among us in these days of Netflix now hasn't sat down and watched, you know, an entire TV series in a day or two and just spent the entire sure, day. Yeah. Sure. So You're not wrong. this is why I, it bothers me when people complain about that a movie is too long. I'm like, how many episodes of Stranger Things did you watch in a row when it came yeah. out? Hmm? So I'm glad you mentioned that, Nicole, because I also get old grumpy man about kids these days <laughs> and complaining about long movies. And that was very much a thing. You know, when, when Endgame came out, people were losing it about how long Endgame was. And, uh, Yes. This movie's really long. <laughs> it's even longer in the extended cut, and all three of them are that way, Return of the King in particular. And uh, you know what? There's a place for long films, and they've existed in the past, and it's not like they're anything new. Right. Plus, you're telling an epic in this case, you know. Yeah, it seems like our collective... I, I do have this weird, like, old man Brett theory, where I do think that... <laughs> That streaming, because it's like more instantly gratifying, like you're going through things 40 minutes at a time. And even if you are binging, you're constantly getting that dopamine hit of like ending an episode, starting a new one, getting a cliffhanger, getting a resolution. It's different than watching a three and a half hour movie. And I do think that's in part why some people get daunted, you know, by larger movies nowadays. I think there's also something to be said about like pausing a movie and going to use your own bathroom. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> versus two and a half hours in a theater with and like, you know, the theater experience is wonderful and beautiful. And I, and I, I know it's shifting uh, in its way and, uh, but I hope it never fully goes away. But also like when I saw Dr. Strange and I really had to pee, I couldn't be like, excuse me, <laughs> could you pause it? I'll be right back. Yeah. I swear. Can we take a collective vote, everybody in theater. Is it time yeah. for a bathroom break? Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, we know it's going to beat her, right? You know, we know it's going to be Wanda. We're all good. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, and like, and I, and I, uh, something about public restrooms turns me into monk, which is a very old reference. Yeah, um, yeah deep cut. But I, I just, I can't. Oh, public restrooms are my number one enemy. So you know, there is something about being in my own home. True, but you can watch these in your own home now. So it's you can true. choose whether you want two hours and 58 minutes for the short version or three hours <laughs> and 48 yeah. minutes for the extended version. That's right. So, and we will talk all about that. Both of which I watched this week. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, my gosh. I jokingly gave you a hard time like two weeks ago about yep. like, man, Nicole can't find the extra 40 minutes for uh, the extended cut. You watch both. You're yeah. on yeah. top of it. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's let's dive into some of these. And and I thought it was funny because at first I read the docket and I'm like, wow, did Nicole not like Lord <laughs> of the Rings? But then, but then I realized like you you had mentioned no, you were watching it with a more critical eye this time. And there are some funny plot holes that we'll talk about. Right. I mean, 
it's easy to sit back and just be overwhelmed by the visuals and the storytelling, and it's this big epic story, and you get swept away in the fantasy of it. The Jacksony nature of it. And just be completely uncritical of it. Say, wow, that was great. You know, what do you mean you didn't like it? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and this yeah. time I was just saying, you know, maybe I wonder if not all of it is as great as I remember. You know, maybe I should look for no, things. No, I'm, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Such as the case with Pippin just having no issue walking into the <sighs> Prance and Pony and saying, look it over there, Mr. Frodo Baggins. No one briefs Pippin on the need for secrecy. That's just, that's Pippin, man. All throughout the, the story. Yeah. Is... <laughs> it's just kind of on brand for the character, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I feel kind of like they did him dirty in the first movie because Gandalf essentially keeps calling him a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> Fool of a took. But nobody tells Pippin anything. Nobody tells them that they need to oh. keep Frodo's identity a secret. Nobody tells them why they need to be quiet in the caverns of Moria and maybe he shouldn't poke that giant right. skeleton sitting on the edge of a well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, They just blame him for oh, everything that goes wrong when he's just naturally I, curious and nobody's telling him what to avoid. It, you know, <laughs> it's it's beautiful set dressing and it totally is like, as a person who plays Dungeons and Dragons, I love it. But also the idea that a dwarf just plopped down on the edge of a well, died, and then his body just decomposed perfectly in a sitting position is pretty funny to think about. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I, I will say that that scene remains one of the most bone-tingling scenes for me in cinema when you just hold your breath. You know, no matter how many times you've seen it, you just hold your breath waiting for the sound to stop. <laughs> uh, it is painful. Yeah, so, you know, Pippin, I mean, Merry and Pippin as a, as a collective, and then Pippin in particular, are the long-standing foils of the Fellowship. And it's weird, because, you know, let's let's put on our book hats. <laughs> uh, we're about to get nerdy. We're about to get Stephen Colbert, folks. And I believe David's also read them, so I think he, he I can have, add yes. context, too. Okay, and here's where I'm completely out of it, because I have not read any of these books. I haven't read any of these. I haven't read any of the Harry Potter books. I read like the first chapter of the first Harry oh, Potter book and I went, man. this is just too, too Dickensian. And I closed it in disgust. Listen, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm not, look, I'm going to be on, I'm going to say what most people are not saying. You're not missing <laughs> much. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. I am okay firing on the shots actually. Uh, so with the whole beginning of this movie, it is 300 pages Yep. to get the hobbits from the Shire to Rivendell is more than half of the, the Fellowship of the Ring in book format. It's more than half of the Fellowship of the Ring in uh, over a hundred and something years. Like this yeah. <laughs> b movie compresses time from the book. Like Frodo is decades older when Gandalf comes back and is like, 
hey, uh, this ring you've been holding on to, bad news. In the movie, it's like he was gone like two weeks. Right. Which is like, I'm not like, I'm not knocking it for that. Like, it totally makes sense why they would kind of compress that. But yeah, it's like the timeline of things is compressed a lot. Exactly. And in, in true Hobbit form, there is no urgency at any point. Like, even Gandalf comes to him, and when it's time for them to finally leave, Gandalf's like, cool, it's June right now. Leave by September, and you should be fine. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it, that's how all of it is. So point being is that when Merry and Pippin get roped into it, uh, they are not roped into it in the book by, you know, bumping into them during a cabbage patch, you know. Uh, heist. You know, Raid. <laughs> heist, yes. Uh, they're not just, like, abruptly pushed along for the ride. It is much more intentional so at least in that regard like the way the movie introduces mary and pippin is more bumbling and, and funny and it, it makes them seem like they just kind of bumble into the fellowship and that's not quite the case in the books and that's just the function of like david said they, they compress time so much here uh, it takes them you know the whole the whole journey uh, you know from if i remember correctly the the, the actual canonical journey from shire to Mordor takes place over like 14 months or something like that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's going on for a while. It goes on for a while. And there are months where it's just getting the Rivendell. Yeah. So and they get stuck in the barrows. And then there's the Barrow Whites, which are like these half spirit ghosts that trap them in an underground cave. And the mm -hmm. only person who can save them is Tom Bombadil. Oh, and Tom God. Bombadil is a... um. What? How do you best describe that, David? He, like, it's like, so he is like a, a manifestation of nature, essentially. Yes, who can only sing. So Tom Bombadil is great world building in the books. Totally glad they skipped him in the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> in the movie, there is no plot to him. His whole thing is like, it's shown that the ring has no power over him, um, but also because he is so like kind of fickle that like him holding, he would lose the ring is essentially like with that whole thing yeah. is like oh this is why it has to be like a mortal creature yada 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 uh, like i said great world building but in movie format for already like without the extended edition <laughs> it's like uh there's no room and no point to really adding this in like they really tightened up the yeah. story they really did they tightened up a lot of stuff and then we'll get into that as well so anyway i think that that's my long way of saying like i i think that Mary and Pippin are played for laughs more in the movie than they are in the books. Because Peter Jackson knew he was making a movie. He was yeah, exactly. smart. He's like, well, we the books are very Tolkien, wonderful world builder, not the world's best writer. Like very dry. It's so slow. Very dry. <laughs> yeah. You're reading a history book, ostensibly. Yeah. It, well, if you really want to read one, it's called The Silmarillion. Um, <laughs> yes. It was just literally a history book. So he so like Peter Jackson's like, well. Great, the story's good, but okay, we need to make this more entertaining for general audiences. So yeah, piped up the characters of Merry and Pippin a little. Um, the the part when they roll down the hill and they like don't land in the pile of horse poop, <laughs> and he's like, oh, like that was lucky. That was actually the actor, for, and I forget uh, is Billy Boyd. Okay, yeah, that was his suggestion Mary. that they do that. And oh, cool. Peter Jackson was like, oh, sure, yeah, let's try it, and they tried it and. Here we are. 
One thing I noticed in the extended cut in those early Shire scenes is there are so many more drug references from the <laughs> Hobbits. Like when they fall down the hill and and Mary and Pippin immediately go for the shrooms. And then there's multiple scenes of them cooking. And like, I, I know, I can't remember if it's in the theatrical cut or not. Okay, but you're saying Sauron is literally just like, wow, Gandalf, can you stop smoking the Hobbit's weed? <laughs> it's both the cuts, yeah. <laughs> so I like how you say cooking as if like Mary and Pippin uh, Mary's turning to Pippin like we have to we have to cook <laughs> Jesse we have to Maybe cook, have to cook. <laughs> <laughs> no there's just so much more filler um, I, I think it probably makes sense to talk about this movie kind of chronologically as we have talked about the Shire first something I do want to bring up interesting to me about the extended cut this time around was I noticed that they spend a lot more time world building around around Bilbo and they show a lot more of what's going on in Bilbo's head. You know, during the party, Bilbo tries to pull Frodo away at one point to warn him what's going to happen. Now, granted, in the book, Frodo already knows. But in the movie, the extended cut does a better sh- job of showing how torn up about his decision Bilbo is. Whereas I think in the theatrical cut, it's a little cruel. And it's still kind of cruel in the, in the extended cut. Bilbo is kind of an ass in this movie. But... uh they show more layers of him in the extended cut early on. Yeah, they definitely do. He does pull Frodo aside at one point and talk to him, but it's just they're hiding from the the Sackville Bagginses. Sackville and Bagginses. Bilbo's yeah. explaining to Frodo how selfish he is, and yeah. so he's sort of pre-apologizing for leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird aside, what if? I couldn't help but think about it now that we've witnessed all three Hobbits. What if Peter Jackson just decided to Lucas this thing and just put Martin Freeman in there? Oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking about how bad that would be. No, Ian Holm is so, he's so perfect yeah. in that role. Like that's he's great for it. That's one thing, you know, you cannot say any bad thing about the casting in this movie, in my opinion. I think, no. I, well, I, I know Nicole has some feelings on Liv Tyler. I mean, not uh, strong <laughs> feelings, but... And I, and I agree, like, I think you had put in the in our show notes about, like, her vocal choices are interesting. Yes, everything yeah. is... let's talk about Liv, the Liv Tyler of it all. Everything is urgent yet breathy. Your time will come. You will face the same evil. And you will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have to wonder how much of that was like... Frodo. Yeah, she's like, you know, she's trying to play the elf. Yeah. The mysterious elf who yeah. appears and... Who doesn't even appear in The Fellowship of the Ring, by the way. It doesn't appear till the two towers in the books. And that was originally going to be the plan. And then Peter Jackson realized that it had been leaked that she was going to play this character, Arwen. And he was like, wow, I guess we better introduce her earlier and establish this love interest for Aragorn. And good. Her scene yeah. when she's like running from the Nazgul is awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is the coolest, most. So there I was watching that movie with my wife and my wife knows a ton about horses having grown up with them. And we're watching the scene and she's like, only half of this is real, you know, because there's the there's the shots when they're running between the trees and it's all happening too fast and it's too agile for real horses to even do, which is why they're really quickly cutting. And then there's the big shots that, you know, of them running across the field that are real. Um, There's a lot of interesting camera work that went into making that seem faster than it could actually be, which is quite cool. Yeah. So you had an interesting thought, Nicole, 
And it caused me to have to kind of put on my Tolkien hat and really maneuver my way out <laughs> yeah. of this. And I can't think of a good option, but I can think of one, which is like, why is Arwen so passionate about saving Frodo after he gets stabbed? Yeah, she acts like she's known him for decades and she's terrified that her friend's going to die on her when yeah. literally she met him like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> so my theory, and I'm interested for, for David's and I'm complete bullshit right now because I don't none of this is canonical there is no canonical reason for this because she's not even the one who saves him in the books it's actually a different elf that they come across so she does not save him in the books I think it's like Galdafring or something like that such a G sounds like Gandalf I, man it's been years since I've read the books like yeah. I couldn't tell you elf name starts with a G that's who ends up saving him but one is that I know that elves feel very very deeply in the lore like they're empaths to such an immense degree that they actually feel the pain of those around them so that could be part of it i think the other part is especially being elrond's daughter she might have some innate foresight in the how important frodo is that's all i got <laughs> i mean i think that works i guess i mean i think that's odd though considering that everybody playing an elf seems pretty detached a lot of the time except for arwen <laughs> and that's also well but also that's a little bit on purpose because we're in the the third age the age of men or it's the dawning of the third age we're gonna get into some right. lore <laughs> here oh yeah in uh, like elves elves have been alive for a long time and the world is changing as galadriel tells us in the beginning right. <laughs> and it's like it's not their world anymore they feel very blasé about everything because they live a long time and are very slow to take action so by the time stuff's going bad they're like oh we should have stopped that well i guess we'll just go somewhere else <laughs> that's pretty much their attitude except for arwen who is in love with a human and like still has a strong attachment to this world while all the other elves are literally getting ready to get on a boat and go right they're all going into the west whatever the west is uh, yeah, and as David mentions, they're going on a boat literally to just leave. And one thing I, I loved in the extended cut, which I totally forgotten about, is that there is a short scene of the elves, you know, leaving to the Undying Lands. The wood elves, yeah. Yeah, where Sam has a tiny little bit of dialogue explaining to Frodo what they're doing, that they're leaving Middle-earth Middle and they'll never come back. Because, you know, there is this island of Valinor that is part of the Undying Lands, that it's where the elves can go, and for some reason they can never come back. It's basically like elvish heaven is kind of how they phrase it, even though they're still alive, because they live so long. Yeah, it's, it's essentially Avalon. Exactly. And non-elves are not allowed in. Except <laughs> except for, like, the six non-elves. Except at the very end of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yes. And actually what ends up happening later in the lore is at the end of Return of the King, you do see Bilbo go. Do you see Gandalf go? I can't remember. It's been a hot I don't minute. know if you see him. I mean, I know in the books, Bilbo, Frodo, Gandalf, and Gimli all go. Gimli. And Aragorn, it's, no, Aragorn does not go at some point. I'm sorry. No, because he's, yeah. yes. he's busy. He's, right. He's <laughs> busy being king. Yeah. Okay. That, that's what I was thinking of is Gimli goes. Gimli goes. Well, yeah. Because, yes. yeah, him and Legolas have such a bromance <laughs> in the book. Bromance. Yeah. I wish Legolas had had more to do in this movie. I mean, he's got stuff to do, but you learn, like, nothing about his character. Mm -hmm. And you never really do? 
Like, it's weird how all the character building for Legolas exists in the Hobbit prequels. I, I will concede that, that, like, Legolas, as cool of a character as he is, you don't get a lot out of him in any of these three movies. In fact, in Return of the King, he is famously absent for, like, half the movie. Yeah. I mean, what's, you know, he's good at shooting stuff. He's cool, though. <laughs> he's very cool. He's there for he and Gimli to play off each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, they they needed him to play off John Rhys Davies, and... And they play off each other well, being those polar opposites. You did mention here, you know, that they need to give Jumpy Legolas another couple of rendering oh. passes. And I would say that writ large across both The Hobbit and this, that Jumpy Legolas was never a good idea. Oh, The Hobbit's worse. Oh, Jumpy Legolas in The Hobbit defies gravity. So It's bad. It's bad. It is bad. I mean, I'm... I am okay with him defying gravity to some extent, but it's just the the physics are all wrong. Just wait till you see how he jumps on an elephant. <laughs> yeah, whenever Legolas like jumps on something to shoot it or stab it or what have you, and he's being flung around, yeah. it just it never looks good. It looks like a bad video game cutscene, and yeah. it's upsetting when you, especially when you know that. Peter Jackson has done some really impressive visual effects with way less budget. And it's like, yeah, we saw Dead Alive. Yes. And you remember at the <laughs> end of that, there's the giant like mother puppet. And uh-huh. with mm. the budget that he had for the Fellowship of the Ring, he could have built at least like partial uh, the top half of the cave troll. Or something for Legolas to jump on and stab at, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of animatronic that they could maybe intercut with the CG. Well, he also, I, and I, I love the the behind the scenes stuff for these movies. The the making of these movies is an amazing task. Like mm. you know, they lived in New Zealand for years, a couple of years, yeah making this like making them all at once like hearing the actors talk about the experience that this was is always incredible but for some of the gaffes of like the way the cave troll now looks uh and some of the shots in moria they built technology for these battle scenes mm. that is like still used today like when like the to have these mass groups fight each other that from far angles makes these fights seem so big and full and, and like amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this aside, uh, and I agree there are lots of little instances that have aged poorly writ large, this movie, I was watching with my wife and she was like, this came out and when, like, because she's never seen these movies as much as I have. And like, she didn't know this could have come out a couple years ago. It looks good enough. For the most part. Um, yeah. There are pieces of the extended cut. There's some ropey green screen. Yeah, yeah, of course. But like there's stuff like that nowadays, too. (laughs) And it looks really, really good. And you have to just credit, especially if you do want to be one of those people that makes the comparison to the Hobbit films, which is just only natural because they're 10, 15 years later with better technology. They somehow look worse because he leaned too heavily into the CGI. And just like Disney learned with Star Wars, people wanted those practical effects back in movies and they look really good and the actors can perform better up against them. I might've mentioned this on here. I think it's Lindsay Ellis did a great deep dive on the Hobbit. I'm not going to go too long into it, talking about how the Hobbit ended up the way that it did. And it's very fascinating. And basically Peter Jackson ended up making the movies because if he didn't, 
someone else was going to be made to. And he was like, this is the only way I can salvage whatever is, has already been put. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, I'm not going to it because I'm a Lord of the Rings. Right. <laughs> but something that does tie in that I do want to talk about is when I mentioned Tom Bombadil, Nicole, you thought I was talking about yeah. Radagast. Uh, and now we, we can talk Ugh. about Radagast aside because Radagast played by Sylvester McCoy in The Hobbit yeah. is one of the other... He is kind of the, the, the what like the brown. He's Radagast the brown, the brown wizard, this? basically. Yeah, he's the brown. Radagast the brown. Yeah, but with that said, he is in Fellowship of the Ring in the book and plays a fairly pivotal part. But they took him out, and it totally makes sense why the the movie works without him. But essentially, what happens in those early scenes when Gandalf discovers that he thinks Frodo might have the One Ring, and in the movie, you know, Ian McKellen says, "Oh, I have to go consult with the head of my order," and he goes to Saruman. In the book, he's actually on his way and um, encounters Radagast outside of Bree, and then Radagast tells him he has to go to Saruman because Saruman has something to tell him about the One Ring and how it has been found in the Shire. So it gives you that insight into Saruman has this information from Gollum that you know Mordor now has. And then when it comes time to free Gandalf from the top of of Saruman's tower, which I'm blanking on the name of right now for some reason. It's actually Radagast that sends his animals to get the Great Eagles to pick him up. Totally superfluous to this movie. There's mm. no reason to have him in there, no. but but he does exist within this lore. Moving along, has, has no one but the elves ever heard of shampoo? <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah, of course they, they... You think the dwarves are shampooing up? No. Maybe the humans. Humans are dingy and gross. Hobbits are farmers. Hobbits are farmers, yeah. So the you know the hobbits aren't filthy, but they're they're sweaty. Yeah. They don't bathe as often as the <laughs> elves do. But I was happy to notice that they're careful with the continuity. That yes, after every time they visit the elves, everybody's tidy and clean and has clean hair again, mm-hmm. and because. When they first meet Aragorn as Strider in the in at the Prancing Pony, you know, he's just as grubby and greasy haired as everybody else. And I'm like, before I had seen the movie the first time, people had been talking about, oh, Viggo Mortensen, hot. And I saw him in the inn and I'm just like, oh, really? It's kind of kind of icky it's such an <laughs> iconic character yeah. intro God, it's so good it's so good it's so good just strider broodingly looking at you from the other right end of the, of and the just end. like yeah being lit up by the pipe right and... right mm-hmm. whereas later on in it's when rivendell after he's washed his hair and like right when he first spots boromir coming into the into the village you know he looks up and the way it's set up is he spikes the camera you know, Aragorn looks straight down the barrel of the lens, like a couple times yep. doing that. With them all cleaned up, looking down the barrel of the camera, I'm just, okay, I get it now. <laughs> I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I get what people see here. And it gets increasingly, uh, there are times when Aragorn gets to clean up a little bit as, yes. as it progresses. But literally, it's after every time they see the elves, everybody's all freshened up and clean. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're the only ones who know about shampoo, right? And his and his, his, his gal pals there, and yeah. <laughs> uh, one, 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 I do want to talk about Baromir quite a bit because I, I Baromir to me is is like the defining character of this movie to me, and I I, I love Sean Bean's portrayal in it. I I love the way they 
they worked this character in in slightly different ways mm. than the book. Baromir does not die until until the Two Towers, first of all, in the book. But something I want to mention there, kind of that ties into Aragorn's appearance, Peter Jackson did something in this movie that I think is really difficult, which is he takes a straggly ranger and starts to lay very basic groundwork for this guy's going to be king without it being aggressively obvious or t- mm. jumping too many rungs on the ladder in terms of his his rise to becoming a king. Aragorn's highly resistant to it, obviously, is in the books as well. When Baromir dies, and this scene just blows my mind every time I see it because it's so beautifully acted mm. between the two of them. And it's, it's oh God, it's so... <laughs> It's so powerful. It really is. And when when Aragorn is able to put aside his qualms with being a king and be the king that Baromir needs him to be in that moment because Baromir needs to die for his king. Mm-hmm. I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Nor our people fail. Our people... Poor people. That is the first rung on the ladder of what Aragorn will turn into in Return of the King. And Jackson handles it beautifully. He doesn't jump the gun too early. No, I I agree. I agree that Boromir is sort of the defining character in this movie because he symbolizes the frailty of humanity and how susceptible humanity is for the love of power, even if they think they're going to do good with it, how quickly power can corrupt. Yeah. 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 I I think that's why I think this movie works differently than the other ones because things feel a little more personal. Like the other ones are these big battles. And, oh, man, are the the heroes going to win against, like, the giant evil force? It's like, yeah, but it's cool to see how they get there. And this one... Boromir, who is supposed to be the like epitome of humanity, right? He is like the son of the steward of Gondor. He is supposed to be noble and brave, and he is struggling so hard with the temptation of the ring. And that scene when he's with Frodo in the forest and almost takes it, mm. right? Like he has his opportunity and he knows he's too tempted. Yeah. That he has to tell Frodo to like, you have to run away and go because like if i if you are near me like i i'm stopping myself this time i can't stop myself again and i know it and it's yeah it's like it's heartbreaking and it's it's so good and yeah sean being an incredible actor Mm -hmm. and bringing an incredible performance here uh as a shame we only got him for one movie but he you know brought so much to it and you know he's the he's like six memes from from this one movie alone i know like really high meme count and also kind of, I feel like one of the, I mean, obviously it happens later in many other movies and TV shows, Game of Thrones, but like the, to me, one of the early impetus of like, oh, Sean Bean always dies mm. <laughs> like, because, you know, that was certainly the case here. Also, another credit to Jackson's world building, when you're introduced to Baromir and you start to learn more about his character in this film, and then you meet his dad, mm. <laughs> woof. Uh, John Noble. You realize why Boromir is the way he is. Yes. And why his brother is the way his brother is. Right. And, you know, for those that have not seen the other two films, I don't know why you're, you're listening to this, but, <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, he's got daddy issues. 
Like, yeah. there, there's a lot going on with a very selfish father. And that is left in, you know, which is nice. If you've, once you've seen the other movies to come back to this one is, they really do lay the groundwork. You know, Boromir is well aware that he's the favorite son of his father and how high the expectations are on him to be the defender of Gondor. And Well, he's not the favorite son. Yes, he is the favorite yeah, he son. He is? Boromir? Faramir's the favorite. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I... No, Faramir's the crappy second one that Daddy hates. <laughs> shame on my shame on my lore. You're absolutely right. Faramir is the pathetic loser that needs to go die in Pelennor Fields. Yeah, okay, Fa- Faramir's the one that almost gets burned alive because right. his dad's like, my my favorite son's dead. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. But you're right. It is that immense pressure up from an impossible father. Right. You're right. This is the laying the groundwork movie. And it's laying the groundwork, not just of the story, but the characters. It's really establishing them so that the next two movies after this, they can just plow forward with story, 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 story. And you already know who everyone is, who they are to each other. And how they're likely to react to certain situations, and that helps, yeah. you know, build in tension where there might not be any. So, and add drama where it would otherwise take like ten minutes to build it up if you didn't know who the characters were before. Right, right, and and some of that early world building is in the introduction of this movie. They show, uh, you know, a pretty lengthy, you know, end of the Second Age battle between the the elves mm. the humans the elves and sauron and you put in the docket here nicole you know why didn't elrond knock Isildur into the volcano uh when he wouldn't just give up the ring yeah. this is one of those classic uh why didn't the hobbits just fly the great eagles to mordor things well there's where... a very good reason why they didn't just fly it to mordor if we really want to get into it i know <laughs> i know i know <laughs> and... i don't know tell me I just didn't want to ask the obvious question of why didn't the eagles fly them? Because Sauron's a giant eye, and they're yeah. they're airbound birds. <laughs> like, right, they're gonna see that coming. Right. Also, not a giant eye in the books, by the way. The eye is entirely symbolic in the books, right. not really an eye. But still, like, yeah, they are an airborne force the, that Mordor would have seen coming and been yes. like, yes, stop that. Right. And the Nazgul have. I don't remember what they're called. Those, the dragon things. Yeah, the dragon things that they can fly on to intercept. But yeah, why doesn't, you know, Elrond tells the, you get some of the story at the beginning, and then when they get to Rivendell, Elrond tells the rest of the story, talking about why he doesn't trust humanity with the ring, is because Isildur, when he had the opportunity to destroy it, didn't throw it in to Mount Doom. And it's like, well, Isildur was there, and Elrond was right there if he was so like, worried it, bro why didn't he just so so there is a canonical because <laughs> they're they're like brothers and that that's part of it they are like brothers and he doesn't he doesn't want to fight him over it but there is a canonical reason for this and by that i mean J.R.R. tolkien realized the, the plot hole and decided yeah. to fill it in which is i'll read a little passage here the main reason that elrond elrond could, wouldn't have pushed isildur was that he simply couldn't have brought himself to destroy the ring he knew that the ring needed to be destroyed but actually doing it would have been different a passage in unfinished tales says that Gilgalad. 
uh, Siridan and uh, Gladriel, all people we'll meet in the new show, uh, failed to find the strength to destroy their corrupted rings of power. And if they couldn't destroy their own rings, there's no way Elrond would have been able to destroy the evil master ring. To go further, Tolkien wrote in letter number 313 that anyone who used it became mastered by it and was beyond the strength of any will to ignore it and cast it away. Thus, there was no one who would have willingly destroyed the One Ring despite their best intentions. That's why, spoiler alert, Frodo and Smeagol's fight had to happen, because Frodo could never have destroyed it of his own volition. I don't buy it. <laughs> it, I mean, I, uh, that's fine. <laughs> it's a stretch. They establish Elrond as like so strong-willed and so... yeah. But that see, I mean, they establish they they establish Gandalf is so strong willed, and he won't even touch the ring in in this movie. But he wouldn't have to touch the ring to destroy it. He'd just have to like go boom and knock Isildur into the volcano. <laughs> Isildur was like his best friend and like his brother. Like that, it, you know, it's killing someone who is so dear to him. Well, then like, they needed to take like ten seconds of him telling the story <laughs> to say, you know, Isildur was like a brother to like unto a brother to me. And sure, I could not sure. bring myself. It could, it could have been clearer. <laughs> I, I I can grant you that. I can grant you that. Yeah, I agree. And I always think it's very funny when posed with these questions. There are hundreds of letters and many unpublished passages Gosh. that we could point to. Well, they yeah. should have been published if he really wanted to <laughs> clear up I know. the plot. Well, <laughs> yeah. they, they were published by his, his very salty son. Oh, Chris, Chris <laughs> Tolkien is such an angry... But... Was. I, he's fi- I was about to say he's finally dead, but that's just really hard. Yeah, that's pretty mean. Um, no, it's just because he was the he was the reason that more couldn't happen with this IP mm-hmm. because he was he did not want anyone touching it. He was really angry about these movies. Mm-hmm. So you know, yes, unfortunately, he passed, but that does now mean that you know these rights have fallen into other hands. Hence, Amazon. Well, yeah, he was. I think he was really salty that his writing wasn't as good as his dad's, and he. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> some of it. I mean, how do you step out of a shadow that huge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he's very. Um... <laughs> To to call back several episodes ago, he's very much Michael Shannon in Knives Out. He is living in his in his grander father's shadow and needs to step out onto his own. Uh, alas, um, evil Bilbo frightened me as a kid. Me too. <laughs> he's horrifying. Oh, it's so scary. Even like now when I watch it, I'm like, I have to like, I have to brace myself. Yeah, no. oh, just that like... one moment where he tries to yes. grab the ring back. Yes. Yeah. His face is so mm-hmm. scary. Yeah. yeah, this movie was a bad parenting decision on, on my parents' behalf. <laughs> How old were you when you first saw it? I saw this right when it came out. I saw this in theaters. Uh-huh. I saw all of these movies in theaters. What, 2001? I was six years old. Oh, God. A little early to see this movie in theaters. <laughs> so goddamn old. Don't worry, Nicole. I was, <laughs> don't worry, Nicole. I was 14. <laughs> yeah. And and meanwhile, meanwhile, my parents <sighs> didn't want me to see Phantom, uh, Phantom Menace until I was oh. a couple years older than that because Darth Maul was scary. Let's talk about the Balrog and and not even the Balrog, the scene where the Urukai are birthed from the earth and kill the goblins that they're, that are birthing them is one of the scariest scenes in cinema to me. It is horrifying. And that guy, what's he called, like Lork or Lorik or whatever that, that particular Orakai captain's name is, his slow and brutal takedown of Baromir mm. is haunting. And there is stuff in this movie I should not have seen at age six, is what I'm saying. <laughs> you want to talk about early desensitizing? Yeah. You know what that reminded me of? When they pull the, the Urukai out of the like the pods and they're behind that, sort of 
film that they have to break through, yeah. like they're breaking through a placenta or something uh-huh. to come out. It kind of reminded me of, you remember those creatures in Beastmaster with the big like leathery yeah. wings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the vampire dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I can see that. Uh, blah, and it's all very goopy. I did and... kind of laugh at it this time, though, because it is kind of funny to me that like he gets out, kills the... Uh, the goblin mm. and then stands up and kind of like, you know, brushes himself off. And he's getting all the goo off his gigantic nipples. <laughs> and, uh, and then he just like crosses his arms. And is like, mm, yeah, yeah, the crossing of the arms <laughs> is a little amusing. He immediately knows exactly like, he know he understands how to speak with everyone already. And he understands, you know, this is his mission in life. I find that so weird. I mean, I guess you just have to it's shrug so and say magic, but how, they, yeah. how yeah. did they come out sort of full adults? You know, even though they've never had any experiences of anything ever. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're bred for war. They're like, I mean, they're In combat trained. Yeah, yeah, they're basically like constructs made for war, essentially. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. It's all, it's really is like, it is magically birthed, right? Mm. Like, it totally is. Um, in the same way, like a golem would be or something. Yeah, the Orakai, as long as we're on that, talk about some of the most effective practical effects in Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. as a whole. Just, utterly and completely terrifying and you know we all lord of the rings fans talk so much about that scene at the beginning of the two towers where there's the giant burn pit of orakai mm-hmm. that the rohirin had killed vega mortensen breaks his toe yeah broke his toe because <laughs> there's a scene in it where he kicks you know he kicks one of their helmets and literally breaks his toe and screams out in pain and they left it in it's one of them belts it only that scene the the whole you know meets on the menu scene is <laughs> oh, yeah. i know we're talking about the next movie here is terrifying <laughs> like these movies were scarring for me as a child i love them <laughs> so in in the hobbit and i don't want to like i don't want to needlessly like compare they try to add this villain into the hobbit the pale white orc yeah that guy and they tried to do so much to like build him up and i never really felt like anything about that character but like the urukai who's i don't even know his name but the one who kills boromir Mm. that aragorn fights and kills is stuck in my memory i can't i couldn't i couldn't tell you a line of dialogue he says but he is just like the the actor who I, I wish that I, I knew and like it's just so effective in that little yeah. bit that he's in. It's so good. And he's working yeah. under pounds of makeup and armor and padding. Mm-hmm. What was everyone's first beheading scene? That was definitely mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not that one. Uh, I don't remember. Man. Um, and yeah, you talk about the pale white orc from The Hobbit. There is an orc in and I'm blanking on his name right now. There's an orc general in Return of the King. You know what I'm talking about. One-eyed, terrifying, the sure, dude yes. that, that attacks Pelennor Fields and Gondor. That dude is more menacing than the Pale White Orc. Uh, that dude is incredibly menacing. Yeah. The one that sidesteps a boulder. Oh, yes, yes, that guy. Yeah. This guy, just by yeah. dint of the size of the, the shafts of the arrows that he fires, you know, they're big around us, like my big toe. Oh, God, they're huge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another Viggo Mortensen story. I'll tell real quick is uh there's like a, a point when he throws like a knife at Vigo Mortensen mm. and it was either like either his aim was like so dead on or like they had not switched out like he was supposed to go like really wide but that was coming right for Vigo Mortensen's face 
and would have really like done some damage and that like deflect that he does is actually Vigo Mortensen. Yeah. The sword master said that Vigo Mortensen was like one of the best students he'd ever had. He was just really dedicated and really good. Yeah. The stories that I've heard and all the background information is that he basically like slept with that sword. You know, he ate and breathed and kept it <laughs> yeah. with him constantly and drilled with it like crazy. Because that's what it would have been like if he'd been a warrior. You know, a warrior never leaves his sword somewhere and goes wandering off, takes it everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, And it wasn't almost Viggo Mortensen. It was almost someone else. Who was it? I keep forgetting. Yeah. Uh, man, let me see. Was it Duke Ray Scott again? <laughs> <laughs> that poor guy. No, I can't remember. Uh, it was Stuart Townsend. Oh, oh, well, thank goodness. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Jackson thought he was too young at the time. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, yeah. I, the only two things I've seen Stuart Townsend in, I've been not impressed. It was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Queen of the Damned. Oh, oh yeah. Queen of the Damned. And he's <laughs> terrible in both of those. Yeah. I'm very glad. Viggo Mortensen's such a good actor. No kidding. Yeah. I, and he's willing to take risks and really dedicate himself to his roles. He is such a good actor. And, and and that's the thing is, you know, David mentioned earlier, people were living in New Zealand for years filming these movies. And if you ever buy the box set and it comes with the extended cuts now, but it has all this, these, has this whole documentary that's like 30 parts mm. of them making this movie. Yeah. And it is just so fun to watch, even if you're not a huge fan of the movies, just because just to see the movie magic happening is amazing. And there's points where like multiple people on the cast, I remember Elijah Wood, young at the time, it's like, yeah, I'm shocked no one has gotten killed. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there are things happening here that like we're doing the best we can, but this is still kind of dangerous. Oh, yeah. Elijah Wood was 20, I think, when they made these. Yeah. yeah. I also want to call out, as long as we're talking about people who lived and breathed their roles, the OG fanboy on set, good old Christopher Lee, who had read these books every single year, as long as he could remember in his lifetime. (laughs) Wow. And knew this front and back. I thought you were going to say Sean Astin, because I thought he like fought super hard to get this role because he loved them so much. I think so. Uh, I'm sure he, he probably did. I just know Christopher Lee was in love with Lord of the Rings, and... I'm in love with Christopher Lee. He had met J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, he's the only one. Yeah, the story goes, I believe, that Tolkien uh, had actually wanted Christopher Lee to play Gandalf. But by the time this was being made, that um, he was too old. So that might just be apocryphal. That might just be the reason why he was cast as Saruman said. Yeah, about to say they both look equally old. But Oh, no, no. Um, Christopher Lee could have played it, I think. No, Christopher Lee was elderly even when this was oh, really? made. Okay. But yeah, I forgot until I watched this again that Gandalf is much more physically active than I thought, than I had yes. remembered him oh, being yeah. in this movie. He's got a staff, but he's also got a sword and he's sword fighting with orcs at certain points. Yeah, he's cutting. He's going. Oh, his his sword staff fighting. And it only gets better when he turns into Gandalf the White in, in the second and third movies. His sword staff fighting is so iconically cool because he just has a gigantic sword like a two-handed broadsword that he is just whipping around Mm. alongside that massive staff and it's just terrifying he is a force to be reckoned with i'm sure some of it is body doubles and his stunt double sure sure i'm sure it is is. and also gandalf is you know one, one of the cinematic triumphs of this movie is that they did such a great job filming 
him to look so big, especially next to the hobbits. The camera work that goes into yeah. making them seem tiny and making him seem massive makes him even more domineering when he is in a combat setting. The stuff they did is to make the hobbits small is wild. Like sometimes it's just perspective. Like when they're on the cart, when Frodo and Gandalf are on the cart, it is just like a super long bench that is filmed from an angle to yeah. make him seem much smaller. But there's like the time when they're on the table in in Hobbiton in Bag's End where like that table is actually like moving. Like parts of that table actually shift as he like sits or moves to maintain the perspective so hmm. that everything still looks correct to make it so that he looks so much bigger. Yeah, it's crazy. He actually also did hit his head on that uh, chandelier. <laughs> I believe that <laughs> yeah. was an accidental thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a, I would say a minor ding on this movie is that it gets pretty noticeable all the cross-cutting shooting over one person's shoulder, you know, sure. shooting over one body double's shoulder to the other actor just because that way you can have a, a bigger or smaller body double. Right, right. I Speaking of Gandalf, because we haven't talked a ton about Ian McKellen, I don't have much to say aside from the fact that I think this is his iconic character. Of many great characters he's played, this is one of his most iconic for a reason. He was perfectly cast, and mm -hmm. his ability to deliver some of Gandalf's most powerful and also most delicate and sincere lines and, and monologues throughout Lord of the Rings, especially in this film, in the first film, is just phenomenal. You want it for yourself! Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. How he can go from high to low with Bilbo and, you know, man, I get weepy-eyed every time I get the Moria, the Moria monologue about uh, what great men don't live to see such times. And, uh, oh, God, so good. Oh, as everyone who said, yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful line. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Yeah. He is wonderful. We'll, we'll start to wrap up here a little bit so we don't just yammer on forever about Lord of the Rings. That That's possible. Sure. Uh, Howard Shore's masterwork. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. What a soundtrack. It is among the echelon of soundtracks that is, or scores rather, I'm sorry, that transcends the film in so many ways. I mean, Concerning Hobbits is... I don't know how to describe it. I truly don't. It is the iconic Hobbit song. There is a, uh, I, I saw like it was a rooftop concert where they were playing movie soundtracks. Uh, and the one that stuck out to me the most was, of course, when they did Lord of the Rings, but also because, like, the guy, one of the guys, went into depth as to why it's so amazing and, like, all the storytelling that they did through the music and, they like, all the opera influences and stuff. 
mm -hmm. that went into it. Yeah, I mean, I was looking for the the part that I really like the most is the the more intense pieces of music that they use around the urukai, like the making of them and the forges oh, yeah. around. Saruman's Tower and then pursuing the hobbits through the woods. And I can't find it in the score. I looked. I went back and I really? checked out. You know, I sampled each of the tracks and I kind of went back and forth through them. And I can't find it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, folks. Editor Nicole here. I knew I was not losing it. It is not on the standard soundtrack. The track I'm talking about is called The Caverns of Isengard. And it is only available on The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Complete Recordings, which is an entirely separate music set. So just throwing that in there for anyone else who happens to be looking for it, that's where you need to go. Interesting. And also, like, as when we talk about his masterwork, not a not a lazy career by any means. No. <laughs> like, my God. No, he scored almost all of David Cronenberg's movies for one so he's done some really interesting work to go with but also mrs doubtfire big and high fidelity so I, okay is that is that knocks against them like <laughs> no no it's he's just like, named good movies right i'm just saying incredibly diverse <laughs> composer oh, okay very different than gangs of new york and lord of the rings right you yes. want really yeah. different you compare the score for lord of the rings with the score for david cronenberg's crash and it's wildly different styles <laughs> He did a Twilight movie? I guess. They got him for the last Twilight movie? The score in the Twilight movies is not terribly noticeable because they're so busy filling the soundtrack with yeah, you're right. bands that they hope you'll like so that you'll buy the soundtrack <laughs> later. So. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. No, it's an iconic score. Mm -hmm. I, I love it to pieces. I, I've seen it performed live. Yeah, it's marvelous. By a number. I've seen it two or three times now from different or symphony orchestras. And it's beautiful to see performed live. I do also want to mention, I'm not terribly a big fan of the celebrity musician. Come in and play a song for us for our movie and you'll win an Oscar. We'll slap it over the end credits. <laughs> I kind of love May It Be. It works. I got When you're talking about like panning out over Middle Earth and all of the stuff they've been through with the elves and going through these forests and they just escaped Moria, there's something about Enya that it just kind of works. <laughs> it's a good song for the piece. At the end of this movie. Well, yeah, it's Enya. <laughs> it fits, yeah, it fits the vibe. It does. You could picture it as an elf singing this song. Yep, absolutely. So Enya's just got this sort of quasi-ethereal voice. Totally, totally. So we, we've already talked about quite a bit of differences between theatrical and extended editions. I did want to call out at least one other. was I, Again, I mentioned earlier how I really love how much world building he does in the Shire that he can't do in the theatrical cut. And I do love that they actually show 
the night when Gandalf comes back to Frodo, Frodo is at the tavern with Sam and... Merry and Pippin. I don't know if Merry and Pippin are there. Are they yes. there? Okay, yeah, they are there. And a bunch of other random hobbits from the town. And it just makes it makes the Shire feel more lived in, and it shows you early on that Sam is pining for the barmaid. Yes. Oh, Rosie. That he will eventually marry 14 months later, Rosie. There's just good little bits and pieces there. I, I do love that the extended version gives Kate Blanchett more to do. She mm-hmm. actually gives her gift to each individual, you know, um, fellowship member. I missed that a lot from the theatrical cut, the, her mm-hmm. giving out each mm-hmm. of her gifts. Yeah. yeah. And and the hair the hair thing is goes deep. With Gimli? Deep into the lore too it's a sweet little moment yes it is oh yeah by the way talk about scary stuff as a child kate blanchett going evil for a hot minute (laughs) i could be the queen yeah in place of a dark lord you would have a queen not dark but beautiful and terrible as the dawn treacherous as the sea stronger than the foundations of Oh, she's so like effortless as Galadriel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's oh, yeah. absolutely perfect, I think. But yes, the greatest chunk of the movie that got cut out for the theatrical edition, there's a lot more in Lothlorien in the extended cut. Yeah. But there are little bits and pieces throughout. Some of them you don't need when they rest by the stone trolls. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in the extended cut where Sam explicitly says, it's Mr. Bilbo's trolls. Mr. Bilbo's trolls. You know, from yeah. this story in The Hobbit. And it's like, you don't need it. You don't need it. It's no. better if you notice it <laughs> and it's not pointed out to you. And you're like, oh, I bet those are the, th-. you know, I bet those are the trolls from the original <laughs> Hobbit. I would agree with that. There's a lot of um, interstitial we're walking, we're eating, we're walking, we're eating stuff that was cut, you know, right. that, that they add back in the extended editions. And like some of it needs to stay, you know, mm. what would this movie be without the second breakfast scene? But then some <laughs> of it needs to go. Yeah. So if you have the time, I would always recommend checking it out if you're a fan or interested because they do round it out a lot better, right. but they are a lot longer. There's a nice interchange between Aragorn and Elrond where Aragorn's visiting his mother's grave. Yeah. You know, and Elrond's like, she brought you here to protect you basically, because she knew you'd be hunted all your life. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Now, differences between the book and the movie. We talked about some of these again yeah. as, 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 as well. Uh, do you want to talk about Tiny Balrog? <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I won't mention it if it had a chance to, to come up. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of differences, obviously. But the Balrog yeah. <laughs> in the book, very unlikely they had wings. Um, they are also not just, like, they are described, because, okay, so the Balrog are on par with uh <laughs> The wizards. They are mm. the same thing. They are Maiar. The Istari. They are yes. Maiar, but the Balrog were corrupted, and the Istari uh, stayed in service to good, essentially. And so they are comparable in power to the wizards. And like they are mentioned as being big and having like shape shifting abilities, but this like giant hulking horned creature with wings is probably not what they were, but it's iconic. Are they on fire? <laughs> they, they are surrounded by shadow and fire. They are surrounded okay, by shadow and fire. Yes. 
but I'm I'm glad they changed that because it's so impressive. Oh, it's it's no, such it's, a knockout oh, effect in the movie. I, like I, you can't even get mad that they changed it because no. they made it no, so good. You really can't. It's, and it's so iconic that even like future Lord of the Rings things that are still like cleaved very tightly to canon when they leave in the Balrogs, they use that design. Like that's how good right. it is. Mm. I don't love, and this is just a factor of the films aging a little poorly in some ways. The early on in the Two Towers, you see Gandalf fight the Balrog, yeah, and it, it's it's kind of cheesy it's because little. it's just him floating in, in green screen midair fighting this Balrog for like three thousand feet. Mm-hmm. But that aside, that's not this movie. Yeah, one thing that just really struck me about the Balrog this time around is you know it's coming because it's so iconic to the film, and it's almost. That combined with the fight in the forest following it is kind of in lieu of having the big castle siege that the other two have. (laughs) But I wish I was old enough when I saw this movie to remember experiencing that for the first time. Because I would imagine if you were experiencing it for the first time, you'd be like, wow, the monster of the deep. Like, that is the big big monster Mm -hmm. and it it is it's a great monster and then not a half hour later you get the balrog (laughs) they have that one two punch in moria so quickly after one another that must have been really compelling to see for the first time and i I was just too young i can't remember it i don't know i felt like the the monster of the deep it's called the sort of octopus thing in the lake Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh it's called the uh, it has a name but yeah they call it like the monster in the deep yeah i don't know i remember in the theater thinking it's kind of, you know. Oh, the watcher in the water. I'm sorry. That's what's called. When it picks Frodo up by his ankle and dangles him again, the CG's not keeping up properly with the physics. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds... I mean, obviously it's a thousand times better still, but something about it reminded me just a little bit of that moment in Ed Wood where they're like, the octopus motor's broken. You got to shake it and pretend like it's killing you. you know? it's just... Yeah. It... It's it's funny, like watching it now. It's like, oh boy, that hasn't aged like super great. But like in two thousand and one, looked like it was revolutionary almost. Right. Like, yeah, that this stuff was like cutting edge. And like now, you know, we have CGI. It's funny, like how many shots in movies are CGI? You don't even realize because CGI mm-hmm. has gotten that good. Uh, monsters and and animals still a little iffy at times. But right. yeah, it's like. The worst that it looks here is like a mid-budget movie now. Yes. Yeah. I know, which is incredible. And and actually, on the opposite side of the Balrog, they had to cut down the size of the Watcher in the Water. Uh, the Watcher in the Water is supposed to be twice as big. It's supposed to have 24 tentacles. <laughs> and and Peter Jackson was like... That's too many tentacles to have on screen on one time. We can't. Uh, our computers... That's a lot to render. <laughs> That's exactly what Peter Jackson said. He's like, there's no way we're rendering that. We're doing 12 big tentacles. So it's kind of funny that, that they actually right. cut that one down. To give you a segue, one, one more effect that doesn't quite hold up terribly well is Gimli's makeup. It just looks like, you know, John Reese Davies is peering out from behind a mask a lot of the time. It's just so dense on his face. (laughs) A little little bit. And he was quite the diva, wasn't he, David? He was. This was a great... I saw this movie not too long ago at the Alamo. Surprise. Uh, Not for the full thing, but they had a thing at the end where it was Stephen Colbert talking to the hobbits. The actors, not the actual hobbits. And they were telling the story. John Rice Davies apparently had these clauses in his contract where he always had to have an easy boy lounger. And so <laughs> these scenes when they are like on the top of mountains, 
like because then they had to be helicoptered up there there mm. would be a helicopter with an easy boy chair <laughs> for genre <laughs> stage iconic wow absolutely iconic oh my gosh i love it so to close out our discussion very briefly let's talk about the elephant in the room that will release in about a week and a half following this podcast drop we are going to get the rings of power from amazon i did just briefly want to mention it because weirdly enough this ended up being coincidentally timely uh in the sense that you know they are going to be covering the second age it is going to be largely the elves you're going to see Mm -hmm. young elrond young gladriel the forging of the rings the rise to power for the first time of sauron that you see fall at the beginning of this movie so temperature check on this are we excited (laughs) like are we worried that we can't have glad i mean I, i was worried that they'd bring characters there are several characters who technically could have lived through both and they're not using any of them. Um, that would have looked different. Like, like, the, like Gandalf technically. No, Gandalf's only third age. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. But point being is that I guess what I'm getting at is that the actors that are playing these characters are so significantly younger because we're playing it thousands of years in the past that I'm willing to separate Kate Blanchett from Gladriel. Sure. You know, I, I love Kate Blanchett. I don't want to see her digitally de-aged to the point that she would have been. I'm cautiously, I don't I'm interested. I'll say I'm interested. I don't even say like cautiously excited. If it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. My love for all things Lord of the Rings won't be diminished either way. I'm just along for the ride. We'll see, I guess. I don't know. I guess I'm ambivalent (laughs) ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am hesitant because of the amount of money that's going into it you know this is going to oh, yeah. be so much money this is this will be the most expensive television project of all time over a billion dollars went into this first season so i'm very curious because i recently finished the wheel of time adaptation that amazon did and i liked it a fair bit but everyone who's a friend of mine that has read those books now hates Amazon with a fiery passion. And apparently they just ruined everything. So I'm worried I'm going to feel that way because I've read these books. So I guess we'll find out. Nicole, any temperature checks on, on the rings of power? Well, first of all, I want to say I thought the Wheel of Time was fine. I read like the first I liked it. six it books in that series, I think. They had to leave one character behind because there was some problem with getting the actor for it yeah like literally the actor of one of the four main characters just up and left in the middle of production yeah wild i didn't know that they had to use old footage of him from early in the production to make it seem like he's just ignoring everyone (laughs) that's really funny but for the swords of power the rings of power sorry i'm not excited i think it's been too long you know it's been too long of a cooling off period for me to really care a whole lot they'll have to be i'm sure it'll be beautiful they're putting so much money into this they've got some good actors in it that i know of but they're gonna have to have a really compelling storytelling for me to be drawn into it because otherwise i'm just like "Eh." it's always hard when you know how it ends (laughs) yeah that's the challenge of so many stories yeah yeah, yeah. On that note, we will we will wait to see what happens with it. Uh, it will be interesting to see the fantasy showdown, right? Like this and Game of Thrones are going to be on TV at the same time. Oh, so that's going to be weird. <laughs> yeah. 
Really weird. Well, they'll, they'll do it for us on Fellowship of the Ring. Thank you for nerding out with me for the last hour and change, everybody. I love this movie, and that's why I added it to Can We Just Talk About? Because I think you can get even more out of this than if you talked about some of the other two, because it is such an underappreciated, in my opinion, entry in this series. I love it very much. Any final thoughts from either of you before we wrap up Fellowship? Uh, it's real good. You should watch it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you've been sleeping on this for two decades. The theatrical edition is fine. I don't think you need to see the extended. It's nice. If you like the movie and you want to spend more time in the world, it's good to have. It's nice to have that little extra bit of character fill out for Aragorn and Boromir in Lothlorien. Yeah. That they both get. But other than that, I think it works well in the theatrical edition. And I do not hate it. I just wanted to. <laughs> I just wanted to try to be a little more critical of it oh, because fair. it's just so easy to let it wash over you. No, I you and I, you were right to do that. And it, it, you know, and it yeah. gives more for discussion. Like I have movies sure. that I I'm like I won't discuss them because like what am I going to say new about Jurassic Park that hasn't been said? But I will talk about these movies because I love these movies a lot. <laughs> and so yeah, I, I think it's good to have like let's talk about maybe what's not perfect about them. Yeah, and I hope at least having two hardcore Tolkien nerds on this <laughs> program today <laughs> has helped uh, add some new context to something that our listeners have surely seen and heard about before, uh, and maybe gets you a little bit excited for some of the lore that's going to be coming down the pike with Amazon. But Fellowship of the Ring, that'll do it. A reminder, next week is Future Classics, and it is everything, everywhere, all at once. But let's go around the horn, see where we can find everybody online. Nicole, what are you up to? I am at Nicole underscore Davis on Letterboxd. Right on. And you, David? Davlas, D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter and Instagram. Find me there. Very good. Uh, Oh, by the way, shout out to whoever that person was like a year ago that voted for The Hobbit and you did this to us and clearly wanted us to watch a three and a half hour Peter Jackson movie. And we just punted the ball and watched an 80 minute cartoon. Uh, (laughs) You got what you wanted. We talked about the Hobbit a lot here. So I hope you're still listening and enjoyed, (laughs) but I just, that just came to mind, but you can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can email the show. Hi, H I at M G R podcast.com. And you can find all these social links and more at social.mgrpodcast.com. We will see you next week with future classics. (laughs) 